Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. When reaching a decision on a question of law, courts look to a variety of factors, such as the meaning of any text, history, and prior court interpretations. Prior court interpretations are called precedent, and synthesizing precedent is one of the primary skills of litigators. But why is precedent so important, and when can it be disregarded? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Michael Gerhardt, a distinguished professor of law at North Carolina Law School. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the longstanding common law practice of judges issuing written opinions. Why do they do that? They did it for a few different reasons. Um, one was um, it's just the way it always had been done. <laughs> um, it's going back to the early days of the British practice. Um, and that uh, became a useful tradition for judges to follow. Um, the second reason um, is that it allowed them to engage in what we call reasoned elaboration uh, to explain their decisions. Uh, presidents and members of Congress, legislators typically don't give you a brief or long treatise on uh, why they're gonna do what they're gonna do. But judges, I think, because they're supposed to be independent and not political, uh, try to ground their decisions in reason. And so their opinions um, allow them to elaborate on their reasons for their decisions. And then lastly, I think it's of course important for today's topic um, because um, having explained uh, opinions, judges therefore uh, in a sense kind of send them off uh, into the future where other judges may follow them or not, uh, but having explained their reasons and having reached an outcome, these cases otherwise known as precedents are decided in part to guide uh, future decision-making and they can provide better guidance if they are um, uh, put down in writing. So why would a judge care what another judge has said on an issue or choose to follow what that other judge has said? Well, some judges don't care um, and they go off <clears throat> and do whatever their thing is and may or may not get overruled later. Um, but in theory, and oftentimes in practice, judges care about what other judges uh, do for a couple of reasons. One is they want other judges to do the same for them. So you can think of this as a kind of golden rule. Well, if I respect your opinion, then hopefully you'll respect mine. Um, the second reason is um, judges uh, engage in that practice and follow that practice because it allows the law to become more predictable, consistent, and stable. If judges are not redeciding every question, you know, if things are just not open to litigation every single time the issue comes up, there's gonna be a greater degree of stability, consistency, predictability in the law, and judges by and large value those things. Does the weight of the precedent or the persuasiveness depend on which judge or court issues it? Sometimes, but not always. Obviously in our system of law, 
the Supreme Court being the highest court in the land um, is um, a court whose decisions other institutions, particularly judicial institutions will follow. Uh, presidents may not always feel bound by what the Supreme Court says, but they're careful not to have direct conflicts most of the time. And the same is true for legislatures. They'll, they'll try and uh, abide by what the courts have said, but sometimes they'll directly attack a precedent. Uh, the tough thing is if, they, if legislatures do that, they know if that case ends up in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will simply overrule the legislature. Um, but in our system, um, the US Supreme Court uh, has a, uh, it's given a special place in formulating precedents, which it expects others to follow. It doesn't have quite as good a record in following their own precedents um, as perhaps other uh, courts have been doing. What about lower court decisions? Are they binding? They're binding up to a point. Um, so in the federal system, we have three basic levels. Um, at the uh, first level, known as the trial court level, we have federal district courts, which might pay attention to what other district courts have might, have might have done, particularly to what that particular district court has done. And they will closely follow or try to closely follow what the court of appeals above them has set. And they certainly will try and follow the US Supreme Court if that becomes relevant in any particular dispute. The federal courts of appeals will generally try to um, follow the US Supreme Court. Uh, and then within their own circuit and the circuit courts are or courts of appeals are divided into circuits. Um, the Federal Court of Appeals will then um, perhaps prioritize its own decisions first over those of any circuit that might be conflicting. Um, other circuit courts or court of appeals might um, provide what are called persuasive opinions. These opinions have persuasive value, but they're not binding. Um, but within a circuit, um, the, uh, the courts of appeals will try to follow their own precedent and when they have trouble doing that, then they may um, come together in what's called in bank, when all the judges within the circuit, well, all the appellate judges within the circuit come together and issue a ruling which is likely to be binding within that circuit for the foreseeable future. So let's focus on the Supreme Court for a moment. It's true that the court doesn't have to follow its own prior decisions? Yes, that, uh, that that is uh, unsettling to a lot of people. Um, it may also explain, though, why so many people want to be on the Supreme Court, because they, <clears throat> once they're there, they don't have other people telling them what to do. They get to reverse that and tell other people what to do. Um, and the traditional practice in the Supreme Court is to give some deference or respect for prior decisions, but not um, uh, completely. Uh, or um, uh, let's say blindly. Um, instead, um, they'll, the Supreme Court, um, again, might treat early decisions as having a kind of persuasive value, maybe an informative value, but rarely a binding value. When does the Supreme Court choose to overrule prior cases? Uh, well, this is, a, this is a big question. Um, and so I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. One is the practice on the Supreme Court uh, has been um, essentially divided along two different paths. Um, 
One path is where justices might have the uh, outlook that they'll perhaps try to correct anything they think is wrongly decided. That will lead them into conflict with precedent a lot uh, and too much as far as the other justices are concerned. So uh, other justices will perhaps question precedent, not only when it's been shown to be mistaken, but when there's some other major reason for um, distrusting it or thinking it, uh, it might not be um, valid or, or of, use, of much use anymore. Um, so that's how the courts have generally sort of uh, figured out when cases might be um, suitable for overruling. But the other thing to keep an eye on is not just what the courts are doing, but what Congress and public interest groups and other people are doing in litigation. They may be trying to push the court. Uh, and one of the things we really have to keep an eye on um, is the confirmation process for Supreme Court justices, because that'll tell us oftentimes what the hot issues are. And presidents may use their power of nominations and the Senate may use its power of confirmation to put people on the Supreme Court that will do what those presidents and senators want. And one of those things they may want is overruling certain precedents. Can you give me an example of a particularly famous instance in which the court has overruled a prior case? Sure, I, I can give you a few famous instances. Um, one of the, um, I guess, uh, it, most important cases in civil rights coming into the early 20th century was a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, which it, uh, had upheld state mandated segregation in the public sector. That's obviously extended to schools and other things. Um, that precedent took a major hit in a later case called Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and was partially overruled in Brown. But because Plessy had, had roots in a sense that extended beyond um, education, um, it required other precedents uh, for the Supreme Court to, uh, to finish the job of overruling Plessy. So Plessy got overruled in a sense in a few cases, the most famous of which was Brown. That was the separate but equal doctrine? Yes, uh, in Brown, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that state-mandated segregation of the races in public schools was unconstitutional. Are there some prior decisions that are worthy of particularly forceful adherence that might resist overruling in the future? Well, I've, I've written a fair bit on this subject, and I ventured out to, to answer that question, yes, though I'm not entirely sure how many people would agree with me. Um, but I, I think there's some Supreme Court precedents that have helped to entrench certain practices or certain um, foundational doctrines in constitutional law. So early Supreme Court decisions, for example, that recognize the power of judicial review, that is the power of federal courts, a particular US Supreme Court, to review the constitutionality of the actions of small d democratic leaders. Um, that, that foundation is going nowhere. It's very solid, it's entrenched. Um, there are other uh, decisions um, of the Supreme Court, I think that are also um, similarly uh, establishing foundations which are not going to erode. Perhaps the most famous of which is um, the Supreme Court decisions upholding the constitutionality of the civil rights, uh, of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, that seems very stable 
and very entrenched. Um, so there are precedents um, which deal with certain foundational practices, which I think have become so uh, entrenched in our society that they're not likely to get overruled. Well, Michael, thanks so much for helping us understand how judges use precedent. Sure. Um, when, now we didn't talk about, of course, the elephant in the room. Should we have, or you know? Well, I assume you mean the case of Dobbs, which yes. is potentially going to overrule Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Well, since we're recording this episode oh. <laughs> before the case may be decided, why don't we okay. hold off on that? But I hope I can have you back on a future episode to discuss the result. Uh, I don't expect to be going anywhere. So yeah, happy to do it. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson. <laughs>